Good evening, everyone. As promised last week, we're going to talk about endoscopy today. Endoscopy refers to the use of endoscopes, which are devices for examining the inside of the human body. As you can imagine, being able to look inside the body is very helpful when you're trying to do anything related to surgery, and so the development of endoscopy is incredibly important to us this season. Let's start back in 1806 in Vienna, where one Philip Bozzini made a so-called light conductor, constructed of a candle, a speculum, and an ocular lens. Before this, doctors just had speculums, which are essentially devices for looking inside orifices, and have a bunch of issues. Ideally, one would want the speculum, some source of light, and the eye all to be aligned, so that there are no shadows cast. But if you literally were to try to do that, then either the candle is in the way, since it's between the eye and the speculum, or the eye is between the candle and the speculum, in which case the big head obstructs the light. On top of the alignment issue, there's no electrical lights at this time, and candles involve an open flame, which then also makes everything too hot. Bazzini's light conductor tried to solve these problems, and a group of professors in Vienna tested out the device for the first time on a corpse. Quote, the light conductor sent from Frankfurt by Dr. Bozzini was presented and inspected, and it was decided to test it directly on a female corpse that had been laid out for this purpose. The results were promising beyond expectations. Basically, the light conductor was a series of tubes that used mirrors to reflect light into the body cavity being examined, but also to relay an image back to the observer, bypassing the earlier mentioned alignment issue. Bozzini expected quick adoption of his instrument, since it was useful across most of medicine and relatively easy to use. Unfortunately, in order for the device to spread, it had to be approved by a series of folks, including an archduke, and then the Vienna Josephs Academy, and then the emperor, and then the emperor's physician, and finally, the Vienna medical faculty, who were competitors to Bozzini and a bit miffed that they didn't think of it first. Although feedback from pretty much every other level of approval was positive, the Vienna medical faculty wrote that it was, quote, a mere toy, and told physicians not to buy the instrument. It saw some successes in the few places where it was used, but the device did not, unfortunately, catch on. Throughout the mid-1800s, other scientists took a peek at the same problem. Antonin Jean de Sormeau developed the next endoscope, and actually called it an endoscope, not a light conductor. His version used a better light source, burning a mixture of turpentine and alcohol instead of using a candle, and reconfigured the mirrors so that light could be more precisely focused, allowed for even better lighting inside the body. The new endoscope still had plenty of issues, though. Lighting was still not quite good enough, and the device could only be used to examine a square millimeter of area at a time, which is pretty dang small. It must have taken forever to actually get a good full look at, well, anything. As such, in 1879, urologist Maximilian Nietz moved the light source inside the body, at the tip of the tool using a water-cooled electric lamp, a newfangled technology at the time. This placed the light source much closer to where it was actually needed. He also added more prisms and lenses, which allowed for a wider field of view than, you know, a square millimeter. The first test was on a circus sword swallower, to avoid any issues with shoving a tube down someone's throat. The device was a little cumbersome due to the water cooling system, and it produced an upside-down image, but it was way better than anything that came before it. 
Nonetheless, the experience of using it must have been very unpleasant for the patient. The patient had to lie on their back, with their head hanging off of the table. The endoscope, a metal tube some 60 centimeters or about 23 inches long, was then pushed in the mouth, down into the stomach. They then pumped in air to inflate the stomach, and then turned on the light for visibility. Assuming the patient could actually lay still, and did not panic, and did not choke, they'd get to see part of the stomach. But hey, it's something. This iteration of endoscope, though, was finally small enough to enable minimally invasive surgery, or laparoscopy. A laparoscopy is where you use a small incision and an endoscope to preserve the inside of the body, and in modern times conduct entire surgeries with the endoscope providing sight. Before that could happen, though, we needed to figure out insufflation, or inflating the abdomen with air. Insufflation had been tried as a treatment for tuberculosis without much real effect, although some claimed it worked. But what was clear was that insufflation didn't do any significant harm, besides just being kind of uncomfortable. Jan Mikulic Radecki, who we've mentioned before, was experimenting with insufflation. His assistant, George Kelling, came up with the idea to raise air pressure in the abdominal cavity, but he was trying to stop internal bleeding. Since applying pressure to external wounds helps to stop bleeding, the hope was that it might work internally as well. He tested on animals, specifically dogs. First, he ruptured the liver in the dogs, and then inflated the abdominal cavity and waited. In order to observe the results, though, he inserted an endoscope into the abdominal cavity. Unfortunately for the dogs, air pressure does not prevent bleeding, so he really just watched as the dogs bled to death. Rather morbid, but as that happened, he realized that he had also invented something new by accident. Next time in 1901, he repeated the experiment at a scientist conference in Hamburg, but luckily for the poor dog, he didn't rupture their liver this time. By inflating the abdomen and inserting an endoscope, the basics of laparoscopic surgery were born. However, surgeons wouldn't start using this technique in their surgeries for quite some time. Laparoscopy was once the domain of internists, used as a diagnostic tool to examine the internal organs. This was especially useful in the early 20th century, before we had sophisticated lab and imaging tools that exist today. So usually they would use laparoscopy to look into the body with as small of an incision as possible. There were a few hiccups along the way. In 1923, someone filled a patient's abdomen with oxygen, which is a bad idea if you'll recall from chemistry class. The abdomen briefly caught fire, but very fortunately for the patient, they weren't injured, and surely had a great story to tell about literally having fire in their belly. Taking the torch, gynecologists led the next push forward on the technology. Using laparoscopy, you can actually get a perfect view of the ovaries and womb, so long as the intestines are out of the way. Luckily, gravity was very helpful in this instance. If you tilt the patient table so that the head is lowered, gravity will actually pull the intestines out of the way towards the upper abdomen, revealing the female reproductive organs. Gynecologists were already used to performing minor surgeries, so it was no great leap to use laparoscopy during their surgeries. It started off with sterilization, which you may know as tubal ligation, or colloquially, getting your tubes tied. From there, more complicated surgeries were attempted, like lancing cysts and removing ectopic pregnancies. In 1966, gynecologists were getting pretty advanced. German gynecologist Kurt Sem removed a whole womb laparoscopically, 
and made the first automatic insufflator, which inflated the abdomen with carbon dioxide, not oxygen, and kept it at a safe pressure. He also designed the first laparoscopy trainer, a model in a box which gynecologists in training could use to practice laparoscopy. The passing of the baton from gynecologists to general surgeons finally happened in 1975, in the Netherlands. Henk de Kook, a surgeon, learned laparoscopy from his gynecologist brother Jeff. De Kook performed the first laparoscopic appendectomy. He located the appendix, made a small incision, and watching simultaneously from the other side of the abdominal wall, removed the appendix. Apparently, other surgeons of the time actually thought this was a bit scandalous. And even after this operation, many surgeons still refused to use laparoscopy. The main problem was that holding the laparoscope required a hand, a hand that was often very useful in procedures. The big breakthrough came with digital images. In 1969, George Smith and Willard Boyle invented the charge-coupled device, or CCD chip for short. Although it soon became obsolete as a memory device, it was really good for recording images as a grid of pixels, and paved the way for the digitization and processing of images. The first CCD camera hit the markets in 1982, and by the end of the decade, the highest-end models were small enough for a surgeon assistant to hold the camera, while the surgeon looked at the screen. Most surgeons still weren't quite convinced, though. It took the firm push of gynecologists, yet again, to prove the worth of laparoscopy. In 1987, Philippe Mouret of France performed the first video-assisted laparoscopic cholecystectomy, or gallbladder removal. The successful operation finally was the tipping point, and surgeons began adapting laparoscopy left and right. Cholecystectomy became the most commonly performed laparoscopic surgery to start. It only needs three or four incisions, no bigger than four centimeters each. In comparison, a classic gallbladder removal required 15 centimeter incisions, about three times larger. The innovation was big news for its time, and results were great. Patients experienced much less pain and could often leave the hospital the next day, instead of staying an entire week. Minimally invasive surgery became the new medical buzzword of the 21st century, and began to spread like crazy. These days, there's not a single organ in the abdomen that can't be operated on laparoscopically, and laparoscopic operations are preferred whenever possible. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks to my editor Jojo Tang, my cover artist Angie Lee, and Muse Open for our music. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, and if you don't like what you hear, please reach out via the links in the show notes and tell me what I should fix.